Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, During the 11 a.m. service, the beginning of the sermon, parents are invited to dismiss their children, four to six, for children's worship training. Now is the time, and they will return in good order at noon. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Hebrews chapter 13. This is God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. We look together at the first 14 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve The tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. Amen. May God bless that reading of his word to us. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. It's true and sure. We thank you for this text inspired of old, which you have preserved down through the generations that we might have it before us. We ask now that the same Holy Spirit that inspired it would illumine it. Help us to understand. Help us to understand how to live and how to love. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome and congratulations to the last chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews. We have a sometime series that we do in Hebrews in the morning, and and we've marched all the way from the first chapter, and now we've made it to the promised land of the last. We began in our reading in Hebrews with a very strong and triumphal announcement of the fact that all of the revelation in the Old Testament was from God, but in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And the whole rest of the book pivots on that point. That God has sent His Son into the world for sinners like us. And that everything in the Old Testament and everything in the life of Christ are perfectly parallel one to another and point to salvation in Him and in Him alone. We then are introduced to the deity of Christ and the fact that angels are inferior, that He is superior to them, that He is higher than the angels and an argument is then made for the deity of Christ, that He's the Son of God, the one who was incarnate. And to His deity is also added an argument concerning His humanity, that since we needy sinners are those who share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. And that by taking on flesh and living among us, He lived a perfect life and He died a perfect death in our stead. Then the author of the epistle to the Hebrews moves and talks about the priesthood of Jesus, that he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that his priesthood is superior to that of the Levitical priesthood, which has remained to that point, and it finds its fulfillment in him. Oh, Jesus is the priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, and we are told to be comforted and encouraged by that fact. He is the one who gives us a new and better covenant. When we compare the Old Testament Mosaic covenantal regulations uh, with the life of Christ and all that He's done for us, we see that they pointed to and foreshadowed His coming and that His perfect life and His perfect ministry to us is one that gives us all that we need. We took a stroll also through the Great Hall of Faith. We walked down the street and and met uh, patriarchs of old, some whose names we were familiar with and others a little bit more obscure. But all the way along we were seeing what Christ-likeness was and, and how to live our Christian lives that we might live to His glory. And now all of that great tour and that great theologizing reaches the last chapter where the author turns he turns and goes from preaching to meddling. He begins to stick his finger and meddle in our lives and now tells us how to live. Oh, in in chapter 13, we hear the inspired words that we are to continue in Christian love together. But it's not some feeling of Christian love. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews speaks to us in very particular and very practical terms of the way that we are to love one another. And we hear that we are to love our brethren and that we are to love our leaders. And we are to do all of this because we first love our Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at these three things together in the opening verses of chapter 13. First of all, we're told, love your brethren. We hear that in the first verse, let brotherly love continue. And then there's a whole series of particular commands which follow. What the author is doing is taking us back to the Old Testament, back to the Ten Commandments given to us from Mount Sinai. He's taking us back to the first table and to the second table of the law, which outlines how we're to relate to God on the one hand and how we're to live with one another on the other. And he begins with the end. He begins by talking in practical terms about how we should keep the second table. Commandments number 8 and 6 and 7. And then 8 so important, he emphasizes that again. 
He begins by telling us to love our brethren by showing hospitality. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, this sounds like a strange commandment to us, but we have to remember that back during the time in which this was written and before, there was no Motel 6. There was no Holiday Inn Express. There was no Omni. There, there was no Hilton Garden Inn. There was not a hotel anywhere in sight. And people depended upon fellow Christians to help put them up when they were engaged in ministry endeavors. Oh, there were some inns, but not like we have today. And there were quite unsafe places in the main. But to be with and to be welcomed into a Christian home, to have your ministry facilitated and furthered by hospitality, not just a bed and a pillow, but also food and and encouragement and and some sort of information about the needs of the congregation and, and the oppression that it was facing. These were the things that were just what the doctor ordered for the ministry of the church to go forward in power and in might. You see, it's not just a matter of kindness. It's particularly a matter of gospel importance that hangs in the balance because itinerant evangelists and missionaries and disciples and apostles, they needed the hospitality that other believers would give them as they traveled and visited and preached and taught in the churches. You know, we've all heard the expression before, this world is not my home. But here the author of the epistle to the Hebrews under inspiration is telling you that your home is not your home, that you're but a steward, that the place where you live is to be a place of fellowship and of kindness and of ministry and of welcoming. You are, we are all to give hospitality one to another and to other Christians who are seeking to do good in the work of the Lord. Now, of course, when we read this passage, our mind immediately goes to the end. But what about all this angels bit? We want to know the answer. And there would have been bells ringing for any of the original Hebrews who heard this book read, this epistle read in their midst. They would be remembering about the visitation of angels when strangers were entertained. They would remember about Father Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he walked out the door in his tent and he, would, and he saw the three strangers coming towards him. The angel of the Lord and his two other companions who came and sat and had table fellowship with Father Abraham. As he instructed that preparations for a meal be made and, and they sat and supped together and, and there was discussion not about things merely on a human plane, but, but these were visitors that included the divine. These were visitors who had come looking like men, but really in substance being God the Son Himself and also angels accompanying Him as they spoke of the things of judgment and the things of blessing and the things of salvation and rescue. Oh, this was no ordinary visitation. Our father Abraham was visiting and and was ministering to angels unaware. And so we too were told to remember that fact and to keep open in our minds that possibility. 
Now, if you ask me practically what does that mean in my home, then I would say that, that you at least need to remember the old adage that this world, there's more to it than what is dreamt of in our philosophy. The Bible teaches that there are unseen beings around us and things that happen in our world affected by them, and, and we may even be those who entertain angels unawares. Our family last evening may have had some angels unawares in our household. I don't know. I, I reflected upon it last night after they had left. Uh, the Garcia family uh, came over for a late Thanksgiving. They, they had not celebrated American Thanksgiving. Uh, they had not been invited into a home, and, and they didn't quite know what things were about. So, so we brought them over, and, and we roasted a turkey on the, on the back smoker. They came in, and we set down uh, all the appropriate things. There was turkey, and there was dressing. Uh, there were uh, uh, all sorts of side dishes and rolls. Uh, there was pumpkin pie and, and even some uh, chocolatey dessert. And, and they uh, took a sample from everything, just like we do at a family night dinner. And then the questions came. What is dressing? And what does it have to do with clothing? We talked about pilgrims and, and we talked about... Uh, President Lincoln and nationalizing of the holiday. Oh, lots of things from American history, but perhaps we were entertaining angels unawares. I don't know. I did learn one thing, though, in the dinner. Uh, they taught me that there are turkeys in Mexico in South America, and they taught me to pronounce the name of the turkey. And once I finished garbling it, it sounded something like guacamole. I don't know if they were angels, but they might have been. We are to remember, the author tells us, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to show kindness, to have open hearts and homes, to show hospitality to strangers, and so further the gospel ministry. And then secondly, we're told to love our brethren by remembering prisoners. We are to remember our brothers and sisters who find themselves persecuted and imprisoned for the name and sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, what's in, in mind here in the short little verse 3, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body, is a practical application of all the, the Christian teaching and theology that's come before. They're not in prison for murder and theft. These which are spoken of here are in prison because of their faith and their love of Christ. The early church faced enormous persecution. We see that in the book of Acts. We see it in the life of the Apostle Paul. But it was true across the face of the church. And if you were taken away and put in prison, then your brethren would have to search you out and find you that they might feed you so that you might survive. So they might visit you and bring you a cloak so that you might not freeze. That they might intercede with the authorities and and have you released, there, there was a great need for Christians to show love to other believers who were under persecution. It was a matter of survival. And every believer, as a part of the body of Christ, should feel that need. Because not only are we one body together, but each of us are in the flesh. And we know what pain and suffering, what heartache and persecution and disappointment are like. And so we should have sympathy one with another. This is the same topic that our Lord spoke to 
when he gave that great parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. He said that we would be called blessed one day if we had cared for his sheep and visited them in prison, that he would count it, he would count it as a visitation of he himself. Jesus knew what it was like to be bound. He knew what it was like to be taken away for punishment that he himself did not deserve. He is one who because of our union and communion with us, he is ours and we are his. That he never forgets us, he never abandons us. And so we should not abandon one another. We can imagine how easy it would be Uh, for us to listen to trumped-up charges. He's a blasphemer. Uh, He's a troublemaker. He's a criminal. Jesus tells us to remember them, and in remembering, not just to think about them, but to meet their need. Oh, they may may be the least in the eyes of men, but if they are His, then He is theirs, and they are ours, and we must care for them as we would care for Christ Himself. Do you remember the words that Jesus spoke to the one who would become the Apostle Paul when He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? Our Lord also calls each one of us to show practical compassion to other believers who are mistreated, particularly for the name of Christ. And then there is a shift to the seventh commandment. We go from the eighth and the sixth to the seventh. And we hear this language, verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, I'm very tempted here to begin speaking the words of the, the, the marriage bride and say, marriage is but we will uh, spare you that speech. But we live in a day and an age where this matter of marriage is of utmost importance for us not to forget. It is something that we must speak and teach and encourage one another in, even as believers in the first century clearly needed the same. We live in a day and an age where Our children need to hear us speak from the Bible, Old Testament new, about the importance of marriage, that it's a creation ordinance, that it's something not to forget, that it's something as they grow up they need to remember. And if they haven't been given the the gift of contentment, then, then they indeed may be called to open their eyes and look for one who is a believing spouse as well, uh, ordained for them. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Oh, they need to learn that as they move from the hallway of no into the bedroom of yes, that it's important for them to reorient their thinking and even their feeling after the Word of God rather than what the society and the media and the government tell them. We live in a startling day where there is confusion and fundamental undermining of even the existence of marriage itself. And so the young people among us, as well as the old ones, need to all be encouraged in right and biblical thinking. We don't need to be like the Shakers. Remember them in the early American era? Uh, They built these long meeting houses with a hallway down the middle and 
and they had all the women sleep on one side and all the men sleep on other and and the last act was to sprinkle was to sprinkle flour on the floor each night in order to uh, catch anyone who was uh, walking from one side to the other. No, the apostle or, or the inspired author here is telling us that marriage should be held in honor, not disdain. It is not something to hate or despise, but rather is something to appreciate and to enjoy in the way that God himself has ordained. And then the author shifts and gives us a fourth point about how to love our brethren. We must love our brethren by also being content. It's an interesting symmetry as he moves from the seventh to the eighth commandment in talking about contentment. But here he's talking about money. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Oh, when it comes to money, we especially feel that the author has gone from preaching to meddling. We feel him touching us in that most sensitive spot in all of our life, our checkbook. And he begins to tell us that we should not be those whose lives are characterized or controlled by the love of money, but rather, by contrast, by the love of God. But we're left with all those practical questions. How much is enough? What does security look like for me? Is it okay for me to spend or should I not spend? These are all the pressing questions of a consumerist society and heart. And contentment is the key which is held out to each one of us. You see, faithfulness is not found in asceticism on the one extreme or in living large in conspicuous consumption as is common in our society today. Rather, faithfulness is found in trust, in looking to the Lord, in trusting Him, in trusting Him in His providence with what He has given us, with the gifts and talents and strengths that He has given and what they will command in the marketplace. The Lord teaches us here. He reminds us that He will never leave us or forsake us, and that is our most ultimate and foundational security. But He doesn't have no feeling for us, no heart for us, and how we feel about the matter. In verse 6, He quotes from Psalm 118 in verse 6, And it's a psalm that would have been known and would have been sung by all the hearers who first heard this epistle read to them in church. The Lord is my helper. Helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? These words, deep in the heart of encouragement and strengthening, they would remind each and every one of the Emmanuel principle that God is with us. He will not leave us or forsake us. And we can feel good and safe and even content in Him. Oh, love love your brethren and love them, not by stealing from them or, or coveting what they have, but rather by being content in all that God has given you. And then we see the author turn the page. In Hebrews chapter 13, the focus shifts from the 
second table of the law in our relationship one with another to our relationship with leaders in the church. It's really the fifth commandment that now draws the author's attention. And here he says in so many words, love your leaders. Now, leadership in the church is a touchy thing because we live in a day and an age in which it's a hard topic for people to study and face. We we are innately anti-authoritarian and individualistic, are we not? And we find that in our culture, pastors in particular are viewed by the media as, um, well, shysters of the order of snake oil salesmen. You know, it used to be when I was growing up, we were ranked among used car salesmen, but but now that's just a little too high for our kind. Well, it's true. There have been failures of leadership, and all of us fail. We have feet of clay. Uh, we fall short of perfection, each and every leader in this church. And I hope I would be the first to hold up my hand and say that that's true of me. We, however, need to learn all to love and to submit and to encourage and support leadership within the church because that leadership ultimately comes from God. Christ is the one who gives gifts. Christ is the one who gives leaders in the church as a blessing. And so we accept them from Christ in the terms which he himself dictates. And so the opening verse in this section is number seven. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. You know, the whole epistle to the Hebrews is doctrinal and biblical teaching from one end to the other. And here in the last chapter, we're being told that that kind of teaching that the author is modeling is exactly what we need. Leaders should teach truth, and that truth is good for us. It's good for our souls. It's good for our walks. It's good for our families. It's good for the whole congregation. You know, in this day and age, like in the one that is past, this has not always been the case. You know, some churches barely have enough truth dispensed on Sunday morning from the pulpit, barely enough to fill up a thimble. Oh, they have a lot of other things dispensed. Self-help of this and that and enthusiasm and all sorts of self-centered drama. But, but here we're being told that truth is what we need. We soon together will enter the Christmas season. We pass through the portal of Thanksgiving and we're going into the time where you will hear a shaking sound in the churches and they will be separated into two groups. You know, there are many churches today where they just love Christmas. They love baby Jesus meek and mild and they keep, keep him locked up in that manger all, near, all year long. He's cute. He's cuddly. He's fuzzy and fun to be with. But you know, under their preaching and teaching, he never seems to grow up. He never seems to grow up into the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He never seems to grow up into the Lord of glory who returns in power with his holy angels to judge the living and the dead. Oh, there, there is a discount on so much of the Christian faith it's, as it's taught and preached in certain places. And let me just say, how thankful I am each and every day that we have the privilege of being in a church where the senior pastor mounts this pulpit and he preaches the Word of God. 
that he preaches the word of God from in truth on fire, that he might do so for our blessing and for our benefit, that our spiritual lives and our spiritual families might grow after the image of Christ our Lord. Thank God for that speaking of the word of God in truth. But the author continues, and he says, let, let you, you should love leaders by considering their conduct as well. Verse 7, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. As I mentioned before, leadership is a hard topic, and, and there are attitudes and opposition and, and, and cultural posturing that make it difficult for us. But we need to remember that this side of heaven, no one's perfect. Not a one of us. Not one sitting there or one standing here. All of us have gone astray. All of us fall short of the glory of God. We would not be realistic to expect perfection in absolutely everything in any of our church leaders. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews knew this fact. And when he's commenting on leadership in this way, he's doing so for some useful reason, not some idealizing that doesn't pay attention to the foibles of men. I would propose to you that what is taught here is not perfection, but rather purpose. That what the author is doing is highlighting the fact that leadership is given not to display their perfection, but for the purpose of blessing and ministry in the church. It's not that your pastors have never set a foot wrong or said or done anything that didn't cause offense, but rather that they are an occasion on which all of us can learn from what they say and from what they do. And did you know you can even learn from the mistakes that your pastor makes? I've made plenty of them and will keep doing so. But Jesus, you see, has given leaders by giving them gifts and giving them to the church for good purpose in our Christian walks and lives. And so we're called to consider their conduct, to watch, to learn, to listen, and to act and interact as we seek to understand. We, we will smile at times, and I hope at times you'll even chuckle and And when you see the feet of clay of this pastor, then shake your head. Um, Don't frown too much. Let me give you a southern expression to use at the worst of times. Just smile and say, oh, Duncan, bless his heart. (laughs) Forgive, encourage, strengthen. Because you see, this is not some sort of idealized rock star thing that's in view. It's rather for a gospel-driven purpose. Leadership is for the purpose of teaching and preaching and ministering and caring and loving the flock. That is the purpose that the Lord has given it for. And that is the purpose for which all of us strive. We are called to consider their way of life and to imitate their faith. The truth of the Word of God as they believe it and as they teach it and as they preach it and as they live it out. That is what we are to imitate. Not they themselves, per se. We move from consideration of conduct to imitation of faith, all to the glory of God. We're to love our brothers and our sisters. We're to love our leaders. 
But then the author also here tells us that we are most foundationally and importantly to love our Lord. Oh, there's a a basic thing going here, a shift from the first table of the law from commandments 5 to 10 back to the first table which undergirds it. It's our relationship with God that's foundational to the way that we live together in love as believers. And so the author of the epistle to the Hebrews takes us back to first principles. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's highlighting for us that our Lord is immutable. He's highlighting for us an attribute of the divine in Christ. He's reminding us that Jesus is God, the Son of God who has come in the flesh. And so He is stable and He is safe. He accepts you, sinner, if you but cast your care and trust upon Him. He will not cast you out. He will embrace you. He will unite you to Himself if you but love Him, if you but cast your cares and faith upon Him. Oh, every blessing from heaven comes only in Him. And that is what He holds out in this verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And He strengthens you by His grace. He doesn't leave you in the same place that you were found before. No, He is a blessing to you. He aids you in your Christian walk. Listen to verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings... For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Here, it sounds like this language of turkey is coming up again from the side. What does this have to do with turkey and ham and dressing, this business of foods and and being strengthened? Well, it's not Thanksgiving meal that's been being talked about, but it's the contrast between in the Old Testament the sacrificial system where the sacrifices are made and their blood is shed and sprinkled to symbolize and point to Christ and the forgiveness of sins, but yet the flesh and body of those animals so sacrificed is burned up versus Jesus Christ our Lord, who's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was sacrificed outside the camp, but yet also we are fed By His life, He is our true food and our true drink. He gives us the grace that we need to face each and every day. That is why we are strengthened by grace. It's not dietary laws that matter. It's our relationship with Jesus. It's trusting in Him. It's finding in Him all that we need for our Christian living. He suffered loss because of our need. Verse 12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people of God through His own blood. He suffered. He died that we might live and have life everlasting with Him. And so He leads the way for us, we are told in verses 13 and 14. Let us therefore go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He has endured For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Oh, our Lord shows us the way, and we but follow in His footsteps. 
He is the one who despised the shame of the cross, and so we despise it as well. Though we might find ourselves put in prison, though we might find ourselves having to be content with less, though we might find ourselves surrounded by all manner of things which trouble our conscience and heart, we follow Him. We follow Him in His suffering. And so we give honor and glory to Him because this is not your home. Your home is not your home. This city is not your home. The new Jerusalem is your home. The new heavens and new earth. It's that better place which He is taking you to that you will dwell with Him forever and give Him glory. Continue in Christian love until He returns. Amen.